Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is April the 22nd, 2022. Um, Last month, I was in New Orleans and I visited the American World War II Museum. And as a consequence, I wrote a piece entitled Shadows of World War II in Ukraine, the life and afterlife of the Second World War, suggesting that, if anything, the afterlife of the Second World War um, is longer than the life itself. Uh, And when we look at the headlines today um, and the the visions of war in Ukraine, New York Times, for example, uh, images from Kharkiv uh, or pictures of lost people, lost refugees on buses leaving the war front. Uh, it certainly brings to mind uh, World War II. Um, I also noted um, earlier this month, there was a wonderful essay in LitHub uh, entitled The Many Wars Within the Last Great War by the great war historian Richard Overy. It was borrowed from his new book, Blood and Ruins, The Last Imperial War, 1931 to 1945. And I'm thrilled and honored that Richard is joining us from uh, Brescia in Italy. Uh, Richard, You obviously wrote your book, um, Blood and Ruins, before this latest outbreak of war in Ukraine. To what extent is Ukraine still a front of the Second World War, or is it something different? Well, I'd like to think it was very different, because after 80 years, it's a a very different world we live in. the only problem, of course, is that there are uncanny echoes in this conflict from the Second World War, I mean, precisely uh, what you said. Uh, and, of course, it's being played out in one of the great battlefields of the Second World War, where the Germans invaded and then the Soviet Union drove the Germans back. Ukraine was in the middle of all that. And here it is in the middle again of a new European war. Um, also, you know, you can see repeated again all the problems about um, well, the, that the Russian army faces uh, in combat. In some ways, it seems a little different from 1941, even though they've got modern weaponry. Uh, I, I think that you know, if Putin had read a bit more history, he might have acted differently. He claims that he knows his history. But it's a certain kind of history he reads. I'm sure he hasn't read any of your books, Richard. Well, I'm sure he hasn't. He lives in something of a parallel universe, in fact, I mean, uh, as many Russian historians do, um, because they see the world looking out from Russia. Uh, and it does look very different from the world looking from you know, London or, or Washington. But they also have a vested interest in distorting the past. Um, And there are all kinds of aspects of the Second World War which they don't really want to face up to. Um, It's a, you know, for for Russia today, the Second World War is a heroic story. Uh, It's how Russia almost alone defeated Hitler. And that's a story they don't want to get rid of. Richard, if, if uh, Putin had the time and the intellectual focus to pick up your new book, it's been acclaimed. It's, I think, a modern classic. People say it's perhaps the last statement. There'll never be a last statement, of course, on World War II, but it's a very significant statement. 
what would he learn? I think he'd be struck by the dates you give to what you call the last imperial war, 1931 to 1945. There was no formal war in the Soviet Union in 1931. What would Putin learn from your book? Well, I mean, I, I think the main thing he might have learned is that, you know, waging war in Europe is a bad idea. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, the Germans conquered almost all of continental Europe and lost the war. Um, also, he might have learned a little bit more about, uh, you know, operational and tactical um, know-how. Um, the Russian army, as I said, has got a lot to learn. He could have looked back at the Second World War and learned from that. I think though that he would not be surprised by the dates of my book, and he wouldn't be surprised because, you know, throughout the 1930s, Russia was constantly looking at Japan, wondering what Japan's plans were. And Japan had already invaded part of Siberia at the end of the First World War, and many Japanese army leaders were also looking at the Soviet Union and wondering whether, perhaps in alliance with Germany, they could carve up Eurasia between them. Um, so for the Russians, although they were not actively engaged in conflict with the Japanese until 1939, um, you, know, you had to watch both your European front and your Asian front. And I think for, for Putin and for other Russian scholars, it would not seem so surprising. Uh, you begin... Uh, in 1931, your history of the last imperial war because of the Japanese invasion of Manchuria. Richard, when I was a schoolboy, we learned about the Russian-Japanese war of 1904, was it 1904 or 1905? 1904 or 1905, we were taught it was significant because it was the first time that an Asian power defeated a European power. But you're suggesting really in your book and in your reading of history that there's no great difference between the Japanese in their imperial ambitions and appetite and the Germans or the Italians. Is that fair? Well, I mean, it's no different if we compare it with the appetites of the, of the Dutch or the British or the French. Right, and, I know exactly. and the real problem is that Japan and Italy and Germany, in a sense, modeled their um, anxiety about empire, about wanting an empire, on what they've seen other European powers doing. And they assumed that if you wanted to be one of the great power players, then you needed to have a territorial empire. Um, no, the Italians had a small one, the Japanese had a small one. But, you know, in the 1920s and 1930s, Britain and France still dominating most of the global system. You know, the Japanese and the Italians, and then the Germans too, began to think, well, you know, if empire is what makes you a great power, we ought to have one too. You begin the book with a quote from Nietzsche. Um, We've entered the classical age of war. This is from Nietzsche in 1881. We've entered the classical age of war on the larger scale, the age of scientific war with popular support. There will be wars such as never been before on Earth. Uh, of course, the Second World War wasn't the first war of its kind, wasn't the first imperial war. But is it technology above all else, Richard, that defines the Second World War in terms of its imperial ambitions and destruction? <clears throat> well, technology told in a, in a sense, I suppose, because in the end, um, the, uh, the allies, all three of them, uh, developed the technology they needed to be able to defeat the Axis powers. And if they hadn't been able to do that, uh, then we might be living in a very different global age. Um, 
the technology might have encouraged, I suppose, the Japanese and Germans to think about their imperial ambitions. But actually, well, the Japanese and the Germans fought actually rather old-fashioned wars, um, relying very heavily on regular infantry and artillery. Um, and German air power, although it looked you know, fearsome at the beginning of the war, uh, was never the equal of, uh, of a British or American air power. Um, and the development of modern technologies in Japan was generally far behind uh, what was available for the Western Allies or indeed for the Soviet Union too. So technology certainly in the end played a very important part in, in deciding the outcome of the war. I don't think it had a great part to play in the, in the initiation of, of imperial ambitions. It was driven much more by political fantasy on the part of Hitler, of Mussolini, of the Japanese military and political leaders, a fantasy that somehow or other you could, on your own, almost unilaterally, uh, change the geopolitical picture of the, of the world uh, to your advantage. You wrote about this in your book, uh, The Dictators, Hitler's Germany, Stalin's Russia. Um, but you also suggest in, in the book and in your writing that you can't see the Second World War in purely moral terms. When I went to the world, I don't know if you've been to the National World War II Museum in New Orleans, but there's something sort of disconcertingly moral about it, this idea of the victory of goodness over evil. Your book is very much opposed to that reading of the war, isn't it, Richard? Well, it is. I mean, it's only because in you know, war, particularly in major total war like this, uh, you know, morality becomes relative. Uh, and for the Allies, you know, however moral they wanted to be, their priority was defeating their enemy. Uh, and so you had to use any means to enable you to do that. Uh, and the, the moral aspect of that, of course, is that you have a responsibility to your own population and to your allies. Uh, that's your moral imperative, not to do everything decently. We did a show... Um quite recently uh, with Jeffrey Wheatcroft um, on uh, Churchill. I'm sure you're, you're familiar with that book. Mm. Um, the idea of just as we have, um, just as we have the shadow of World War II, we have the shadow of Winston Churchill. Is there anything coincidental, Richard, that Churchill, who was supposed to be the good guy, was as committed an imperialist as, as anyone uh, in, in Europe in the 1930s or 40s? Yes, indeed. I mean, that's, if you like, an aspect of Churchill that, that uh, the, the popular view of him tends to overlook. I mean, Churchill came to power, of course, almost accidentally in 1940. But he was an old-fashioned imperialist. You know, he, he was steeped in 19th century, rather romantic view of uh, empire. Uh, he was deeply racist, um, a profound dislike of the Indians, for example, uh, and thought India should remain part of the British Empire, uh, well, in perpetuity, I think, if he'd had his way. Uh, yes, he was an old-fashioned figure uh, at a time when the Soviet Union and the United States, when they were forced to join the war in 1941, were committed to ending old-fashioned colonial empire uh, and building a, a different kind of global order. So there was always this paradox. You've got Churchill imperialist, you've got Stalin the communist, you've got Roosevelt liberal democrat uh all three of them you know with very different views about what the post-war world should look like you call it richard the last imperial war because it i guess it represents 
the end of empire. We've done lots of shows about empire. We had the British historian, I'm sure again, you know his work, Kahindi Andrews, The New Age of Empire, how racism and colonialism still rule the world. I think Kahindi Andrews would argue that the imperial world still exists. What would you say to somebody like Andrews, the idea that the Second World War is the, the last imperial war, the end of empire? Well, I have to confess that the British version of the book is called The Great Imperial War. Yeah. I didn't think he wanted it to be called The Last Imperial War uh, because I knew it would be hostage to fortune. Many people would say that imperialism has lived on. What I wanted to emphasize in, in the book is that there was a particular kind of uh, territorial imperialism based largely on colonialism, which went right the way back to the 16th century uh, in Europe. Uh, and for four or five hundred years, Europe had expanded further and further out to occupy you know, great swathes of the of the globe and to rule them as if they were subject people, or indeed you know, racially second class. And it was that conception of the colonial empire, territorial empire, direct control, which disappeared in 1945 for the Germans, the Italians, and the Japanese. I've disappeared in the next 20 years for the other European imperial powers. Now, we can juggle around with the words and talk about Soviet Empire or American Empire, uh, and it's certainly the case uh, that aspects of colonialism, if you like, have lingered on into the post-1945 age. But I think it's misleading to try and see the, the long period since 1945 as a period which is still about... Uh, you know, colonialism and racism and so on. It's a different world. Many of these things might appear to exist, but I think we need to focus on what's different and to focus on, uh, in my view, a climactic end of empire in 1945 to 1965, roughly, because this brought to an end a, a, a global order that had dominated the world for a long period of time. Uh, and it brought it dramatically to an end uh, with a con continual violence throughout the 1940s and 50s. Uh, after that, you had uh, a system of nation states um, and the extent to which those nation states were subject to Soviet Empire or American Empire is open, I think, to debate. So it's as if the Second World War could have been written by the British to bring a not so unglorious end to empire. We did a show, again, I'm sure you know his work, with William mm. Dalrymple on his book, The Anarchy, about what he calls basically the British looting of India. Yeah. Had it not been for the Second World War, um, Richard, the end of the British Empire would have been much less glorious, wouldn't it? Well, it wasn't very glorious anyway, I don't oh, think. relatively glorious. Um, <laughs> to the end of the um, German Empire. Yes. But, I mean, I mean I've mean, i been asked by, by other people whether without the war the empire would have lived on, but I don't think it would. I mean, I think the imperialism in general was doomed of that kind. And even without the Second World War, by the 1940s and 50s, many French, Dutch, um, or British possessions would have been seeking independence or would have won their independence. The war, in a sense, accelerated it because any any remaining legitimacy in the old colonial empires, any remaining moral force for the uh, old empires was completely dissipated by the events of the war. 
So if anything, the war perhaps acted as a catalyst, but it uh, it didn't necessarily cause the final decline of empire. That was going to happen anyway. What is it about war, um, Richard, that you've dedicated your career? I mean, did a bit of research before this conversation. I mean, you're you're one of the world's most prolific historians. You've written an amazing number of books about war. You're the complete world war to the New York Times, which you edited. There's uh, War, A History of 100 Battles, The Air War, 1939 to 1945, The Bombers and the Bomb, one of your award-winning books, Russia's War, um, 1939, Countdown to War. Did you have a, a military family? What makes you so interested in war. Why have you dedicated your intellectual, your working life to the study of war? Well, most most of my work has been a war. I mean, I've worked on other things as well. Um, I think it's from the start when I when I set out as an historian, I wanted to explore areas where there were big questions, big issues, whether those issues were moral, economic, military. Um, Big questions to be addressed. Now, I could have, I suppose, done that you know, working on the Crusades, um, but to me, the the period of world wars was was a critical period, uh, which did raise and continues to raise very large questions. Um, uh, 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 well, very fundamental questions about human history, really. I mean, how at the end of uh, thousands of years of human history could we end up fighting two wars on such a terrible scale and with such a terrible level of loss? Um, so that's really what it was attracted me to it. I have no military background myself, and my family is not military, um, though my, you know, my mother and my uncle served during the Second World War. Significantly, my mother was in uh, Ceylon, now Sri Lanka, and my uncle spent much of the war in Antigua trying to spot submarines. And so they, they actually waged a, a very imperial war, um, uh, you know, quite neatly, I think, for the thesis that I finally developed. Although that's true of many of the great critics of war, including Orwell. I know, I know that uh, Wheatcroft as well reminds everyone in his study of Churchill, which is quite critical, that he comes from a uh, a, a family of servicemen. What the what remain the unanswered questions, Richard? Your book has done as much to answer every possible question, but what still needs to be answered about the Second World War in your mind that you haven't figured out that other historians are still scratching their heads about? Well, that's very good. <laughs> a very difficult question. Um, I mean, I, I tried to write a book which, which really did embrace the, the the whole experience of war, not just about the military and the battlefields and so on, but, but the experience of populations, the experience of peoples who you know, are related to the war, you know, the war crossed across their territory um, and, and how it affected them. Um, I also tried to look at ways in which it was justified, the way in which um, you know, popular commitment was maintained. Um, I mean, I think if there are, you know, if there are gaps in what I've written, one of the biggest gaps perhaps is not focusing sufficiently on culture and the cultural aspects of war, indeed how culture, war culture is generated and what function it performs. And I, I regret that, but it was really a question of, of, uh, of having enough space or perhaps enough uh, expertise. There was a lot of wonderful cultural history on the on the Second World War, uh, and probably still more to be written. Uh, 
I'd also like to see uh, historian, military historians of the war stand back a bit more um, and look at the big questions about you know the outcome of war, uh, about you know what kinds of organisations were needed, you know uh, why were scientific establishments better in one country than another, and you need to have a comparative framework. You need to be able to put these particularly these big states, the Axis and Allies together, uh, and try to make judgments about where they went right, where they went wrong, you know, what was it about their society that dictated the way they, they, they made war. Uh, and I think there's still room for uh, you know, speculation um, as well as some solid research. Richard, in 500 years or a 1,000 years, when people think back at the war, the one thing they're certainly going to remember, I think, is the Holocaust. Um, we've done many shows about it. We did one with a historian, Wendy Lauer, building a whole narrative around a single uh, death execution of some uh, a Jewish mother and her child in Ukraine. Um, you spend quite a lot of time in Blood and Ruins talking about the Holocaust. Do you see it as a part of the war or a kind of, and I use these words carefully, a cultural sideshow. There was no military reason for the Holocaust, was there? Well, there wasn't, but uh, one of the most important things I think about my book is that I intended from the outset not to make the Holocaust a separate chapter, which is so many books in the Second World War do. Uh, your, your obligatory chapter on the Holocaust. Uh, for the German uh, regime, the Holocaust was a, a result of war, war between Germans and Jews, and that's how Hitler saw it. Um, and so Hitler was waging two wars. He was waging the war he was forced to wage against the democratic powers. He didn't want to, want to, to wage. He was also waging war against the Jews, and particularly against Jewish Bolshevism, as he saw it the most dangerous representation of global Jewish power. Uh, and it, it, it did seem to me that it was essential to weave that narrative into the broader narrative of the Second World War. It's not just a sideshow. Uh, for certainly for the for the um, uh, for the Germans, waging the war against the Jews uh, was seen not in his way of legitimating Germany's war, uh, but as essential to prevent Germany's extinction. Uh, now it's a bizarre fantasy fueled by Hitler and by many other anti-Semites in the 1920s and 1930s. But only when the war broke out was it possible for the Holocaust to take place. So there is a, a very close relationship between the development of the war in Europe and the development of the Holocaust. And that's something I wanted to, to convey. And I also want to convey something is, else. Sorry. realised in a, in a kind of high-tech way, wasn't it? With, a, with the very tools of war that Nietzsche warned us about. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, that Nietzsche quote is uh, ideal. I mean, he was a remarkable uh, predictor of the future. Um, the Holocaust, of course, is the, you know, it is the worst crime in human history. Um, I, th I think there's no doubt about that. Um, and it does seem puzzling that a country like Germany, um, which if you went to Germany today, you would never imagine how that could have been the case, but how they were able to see the Jew as the enemy, the other, uh, and to perpetrate the atrocities that were perpetrated 
Um, and that's one of the things I also tried to to demonstrate a bit more clearly in my book about how it was possible. Do you think it's then no coincidence that the title of your book, um, Blood and Ruins, was taken from uh, an Anglo-Jewish uh, uh, political thinker, Leonard Wolf, perhaps most famous now as the husband of uh, Virginia Woolf. Um, I know you're a great admirer of Leonard Woolf. No, I am, yes. Um, and his book on imperialism, yes, I, I, mean, I read it. And it, actually, I have to say, it helped to shape the way in which I finally set the Second World War in this broader context. Uh, um, and Blood and Ruins was a, a particularly apposite description of what was going to come in, in 10 years after Leonard Wolf wrote his, uh, wrote his book. Um, yes, I mean, he was a, you know, Anglo-Jewish, but, but uh, his take on political affairs and international affairs was not, of course, a particularly Jewish one in the 1920s and 1930s. Yeah, I mean, I, don't, I, I didn't want to suggest that anyone has a particularly Jewish take, but perhaps it was no coincidence that he could have appreciated how catastrophic the war would be because the mm. the English were very cut off from the continent in the 1930s, mm. obviously. Mm. What about the, well, um, the, Richard, what about how the war was seen in countries which the war spared? Uh, it, it occurs to me uh, in this Ukraine war, there's a lot of ambivalence about the West's pushback against Russia in the post-colonial world. Are there generalizations one can make? One always hears of a sort of an unspoken sympathy, particularly in uh, the parts of European empire to, to Hitler and the German, uh, the German war. Are there generalizations one can make or does it differ from country to country? Well, I mean, it will differ from country to country and to some extent, but it's quite interesting that those countries that are siding with Russia at the moment are, yes, indeed, ex-colonial um, territories. Uh, and their target is the West, just as Putin sees his target as the West and Westernization and globalization. Um, so there is a certain identity of interest between um, all those forces in you know Africa or Asia, wherever it is, um, who have always felt themselves to be anti-Western, um, and Putin speaks in a sense their their language. Because Putin too, despite everything about Russia, about its adoption of capitalism, about the massive riches that so many Russian oligarchs have made, um, their global interests and so on, there's still a strong sense that Russia is different from the West and wants to be different from the West. Yesterday we did a show with a Washington DC based strategist, Fred Bergstein on the new global conflict, confrontation, competition between the United States and China. You begin your blood and ruins in 1939 with the Japanese invasion of China, of Manchuria. Do you think that this new Cold War or global conflict or whatever you want to call it, the G2 conflict between the US and China that will define the 21st century, is the first time that you have great powers that aren't colonial? Yes, absolutely. It will enable us to finally get beyond the Second World War, the last imperial yes. war that you write about. Yeah. Well, I mean, I hope we don't see a third 
world war. Yeah, um, I'm not implying that, but it, the conflict um, or the, the global strategy. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is different, yeah. I mean, one of the big things that, uh, that I focus on, Blood and Ruins, too, as many other historians have done in recent years, is, is to focus on what happens in China. What happens in China is very important because China is now the world's major player next to the United States. Uh, and China, uh, modern China, is born in the conflict of the 1930s and 1940s uh, until the triumph of Mao. Um, and nobody in the Second World War had predicted that China in the 21st century would be the major power that China is. But the Second World War, if there's anything from the Second World War that's really significant about uh, a geopolitical scene today, it is the rise of China out of the ruins uh, of the Japanese invasion and occupation. What about the return of power, Richard? We've done a number of shows. Moises Naim, the Venezuelan political thinker, who has a new book out, The Revenge of Power, about Xi and Orban and Putin and Trump. Is the power of the the neo-authoritarians in in the 2020s, is it different from the power of the authoritarians in the 1930s that waged the last imperial war? Well, in many ways, it's not. In many ways, when you want to exercise dictatorial or quasi-dictatorial power, you do the things that were done in the 1930s. Um, and indeed, they could have read my book, The Dictators, and learned how to do it. Um, maybe they did. Maybe they did, yeah. I mean, the big difference is simply the technology of exerting power. Um, now it's it's so much easier to control a population. Look at the population of China. It's vast, um, but it's a single-party state. Um, and who would have imagined that you could actually function um, as a single-party state on that kind of scale? So the instruments available for exercising dictatorship have modernized uh, along with everything else. But, but otherwise, yes, many of the, the, the practices, um, much of the, the behavior of dictatorial states is, is very similar to the behavior of the 1930s. About the digital revolution, Richard, cyber war, we've done a number of shows about that. The ubiquity of cyber war, we're told, it's happening as we speak. No one even knows of it. Does that change everything or is that more Silicon Valley hype? Well, it depends. I mean, uh, I remain to be convinced that it will change things and I may be wrong. It may be that in 10, 15 years time, we're all watching cyber wars going on. Um, I hope not. Um but it, it, it does seem to me that, uh, uh, Putin apart, um, the great powers are more or less united. I did not want to have a Third World War. Um, the one warning from any books on this First World War or books on the Second World War is, is how easily great powers can slip and slide into confrontation. And the worrying thing about the current crisis is, is how do we control escalation? We have to control it very carefully. Shouldn't we be getting out our causes of the First World War rather than the Second World War, particularly given the way in which before the First World War, the Western powers were obsessed with containing Germany and now they're obsessed with containing Russia? No, I think in the Second World War too, I mean, it, it developed by stages. Um, and the critical point, of course, was escalation after the German-Polish conflict when the British and the French finally decided they had enough 
there was no nuclear option then, so they you know, they declared war. We're not quite sure what to do, having done it. Um, but then, once France was defeated, Hitler then moved on. He'd never had these ambitions before. I mean, he might have thought about it, but but you know, each time there was a new step forward, it was possible to to uh, move on. You know, war against the Soviet Union, war against the United States. And, um, so there's a there's a there's a kind of scale of escalation which you can see happening, you know, in 1914, but also again after 1939. We need our historians more than ever now, and Richard Overy is one of the greatest. Blood and Ruins, his latest book, a magnificent tome about the Second World War, which he dates between 1931 and 1945, and he calls the last imperial war. Congratulations, Richard. I think he's going to win lots of awards. Wonderful achievement. How long did it take you, by the way? Well, it took me longer than usual because I I, I changed the way in which I was going to write it halfway through. Uh, it was going to be a longer narrative. I cut down the narrative and focused on the themes, which seemed to me to be more important. So it took me about five years, which is longer than I normally take for writing a book. Well, it's a wonderful achievement. Congratulations. Anything else we should be reading in addition to blood? And ruins in uh, in April 2022, as we unfortunately witness more horrible scenes of war and bloodshed and suffering in Ukraine. Well, I'm stuck actually by coincidence. The last two books I've reviewed actually are are extremely pertinent. Um, one is a, a massive tome by Halek Kolchansky called Resistance, and it's on resistance in Europe during the Second World War. And she too, of course, wrote this book before the Ukrainian-Russian war. And she will be thinking too about the things she wrote in there about Ukraine and Russia and the German occupation. And the other book is a book by Nicholas Mulder called The Economic Weapon. Um, and it's a very original book. It's the first serious study of the development of uh, blockade strategy and economic sanctions in the interwar period and then during the Second World War. Uh, and that has a very particular pertinence now, not least because I think his conclusion is that sanctions generally don't work. Both excellent uh, suggestions. I'm going to try and get both those authors on the show. Finally, Richard Overy, the author of Blood and Ruins. Uh, Richard, in April 2022, who runs the world? Who's in charge these days? Well, that's uh, a very difficult question to answer. Um, no, no, clearly, no, no single state or indeed no single statesman, rules the world. But I think we've all got to take account of China and its enormous power, both economically and uh, eventually uh, military. And we have to hope that it uses that power with great discretion in the century that follows.